February 1939, Jean Renoir assembled his cast and crew at the Chateau de la Ferté Saint-Aubin in Salon, some 90 miles south of Paris, to begin production on his 20th feature film, The Rules of the Game. Although announced in the press as a light comedy, it was clear to all involved that there was more at stake than delivering just a few well-timed jokes. Fascism was spreading throughout Europe, with its fanatics willing to plunge the continent into a second war in as many decades. Earlier that same year, on April the 7th, Italy had invaded Albania for no reason other than to control the entrance to the Adriatic Sea. On October the 10th of the previous year, Adolf Hitler had annexed the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. Earlier that same year, between March the 14th and 16th, Benito Mussolini, who'd been ruling Italy with an iron fist since 1922, provided the planes and pilots to bomb Barcelona, thereby dealing a heavy blow for General Franco's Falange army in the Spanish Civil War. And a mere four days before that, on March the 12th, Nazi Germany had enveloped Austria. As for France, it was experiencing its own crisis. It had had a series of governments, all delicate coalitions of liberals, socialists and communists, unified with one aim, to halt the tide of fascism. Renoir had already announced himself as a supporter of those leaderships, and three of his previous four pictures, La Grande Illusion, Le Marseillaise, and The Crime of Monsieur Lange, each reflected his liberal ideals, which made some people wonder, what was Renoir doing making a light comedy? Although the credits declare it to be an original screenplay written by Renoir and Carl Koch, The Rules of the Game was loosely inspired by Alfred Dumasse's tragic comedy Les Caprices de Marianne. First performed in 1883, it focuses on a callow young man, Coelho, who has fallen for Marianne, a virtuous woman who was neglected by her boorish husband, Claudio. Unable to bring himself to declare his love for Marianne, Coelho recruits the assistance of the swaggering and cynical Octave. Octave informs Marianne of Coelho's feelings, but she says she is not interested. And then, almost in the same breath, Marianne announces that she is tired of being ignored by Claudio and decides to take a lover, Octave being the man of her choice. She arranges for a moonlight tryst. Tempted, Octave nonetheless has a change of heart and sends Coelho instead. In the meantime, Claudio begins to doubt Marianne's fidelity and hires swordsmen to confront any man who comes near his mansion or his wife. Unaware of the new guards, Coelho enters the grounds only to be run through by Claudio's henchman. The young man dies believing he has been betrayed by his friend. Learning of Coelho's death, Octave confesses to Marianne that he never had any real affection for her, and for her part, Marianne lies heartbroken knowing that her capriciousness has resulted in the death of a young man. As for Claudio, he fumes knowing his wife no longer loves him. If all that sounds in any way familiar, that's because a somewhat similar story, albeit without the swords and death, plays out in Mozart's comic opera, The Marriage of Figaro. Mozart's Figaro premiered in 1786, but was itself based on a play of the same name, written some eight years earlier, by Pierre Beaumarchais. The Marriage of Figaro tells the tale of Count Almaviva, 
a Spanish nobleman who seduces his wife's young maid Susanna, only to be thwarted and then humiliated by his wife, Countess Rosina, who unites with the Count's servant Figaro, who is also Susanna's fiancé. As far as the French ruling class was concerned, Beaumarchais' plot was subversive, if not downright seditious. The plot not only depicted social equality, it suggested it was time for change, depicting as it did, servants who were far more clever and humane than the aristocracy they served. All of which may sound farcical, but when King Louis XVI attended the play's premiere in 1778, he promptly had it banned. And a similar fate befell Mozart's opera when Austria's Emperor Joseph II instructed his censor to duly forbid it from being performed in German. The license to perform Beaumarchais' play was only lifted some six years later, on condition that severe cuts be imposed upon the text. Why? These were politically volatile times. Yes, the French Revolution was five years away, but the Industrial Revolution had already brought enormous changes to societies all across Europe. Which may explain why Beaumarchais' play caught Renoir's eye. And it certainly explains why Renoir begins his film with a quotation from the text. You true and tender souls, who blame the fancy free, cease your bitter plaints, in dalliance is no iniquity. For if love has wings, it is to soar in liberty. At least that is the way the film started upon its release on July the 11th, 1939. But when we watch it today, we are instead met with this statement from the director himself. This divertissement, set on the eve of war in 1939, lays no claim to being a social study. The characters it presents are purely imaginary. Why the legal disclaimer? Had the film run afoul of some legal writ claiming defamation? Renoir's story takes place over the course of a week at a country estate where wealthy husbands and wives, their butlers and maids, engage and tangle with their respective husbands and wives, mistresses and lovers. Which brings us back to the question, why was Renoir making a light comedy? He wasn't. He was delivering a caustic satire. The way Renoir juggles the various plots, it is very clear that the characters are permitted to indulge in all manner of dalliances just so long as they maintain the appearance of propriety. In other words, it is all just a facade. So why was Renoir targeting France's upper class? Because that privileged social strata was enthusiastically donning the dark cloak of fascism. And it was for that very reason that the film was met with the very same animosity and ultimately the same fate as Beaumarchais' original play. When the film premiered, the mostly right-wing audience were outraged. One patron was so incensed, he set fire to his newspaper and attempted to burn down the theatre. Within weeks, the rules of the game was withdrawn from distribution. At which point, Renoir went about re-editing it, frantically cutting out more than one quarter of its running time, from 113 minutes to little under an hour and a half. But all his efforts were for nothing, because less than three months later, the shortened version was banned by France's newly elected right-wing government. They were, quote, especially anxious to avoid representations of our country, our traditions and our race that changes its character, lies about it and deforms it through the prism of an artistic individual who is often very original, but not always sound.
worse was to follow. The negative of the original full-length version was destroyed when, in 1942, Allied aircraft flew a raid over Paris and unwittingly bombed the warehouse where the print was stored. Then, after the war ended, insults continued to add to the injuries, because the surviving 85-minute version of the film was banned all over again, this time by the provisional government, on the grounds that while France needed to restore its delicate democracy, it did not need its morale to be undermined by a film that chastised all strata of society. But all was not lost. Over the following years, painstaking searches throughout laboratories, cinematechs and private collections found various reels containing negatives, duplicate prints and sound mixes of the original 113-minute version. And there followed an effort to fully restore the film to what Renoir had originally intended, and then abandoned. And finally, at the 1959 Venice Film Festival, more than 20 years after its initial release, a 110-minute cut was, well, premiered. And three years later, the BFI poll survey, published through Sight & Sound magazine, listed Renoir's film as amongst the 10 greatest ever made. And since 1962, it has never been outside the top five. All of which makes me wonder, what would the history of cinema be like if the rules of the game had been completely lost? Its influence stretches far and wide, with masters as diverse as Louis Bunuel, Ingmar Bergman, François Truffaut, Federico Fellini, Jean-Luc Godard, Joseph Lozzi, Bernardo Bertolucci, Mike Nichols, Peter Bogdanovich, Robert Altman, Woody Allen, Wim Wenders, Mike Lee, Wong Kar Wai, Richard Linklater and Noah Baumbach all displaying the game's influence. For many years, the BFI list was taught by Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. But while Kane dazzles with its box of tricks, it is nonetheless the work of a hyperactive 24-year-old novice discovering the possibilities of the medium. The Rules of the Game, on the other hand, is a film made by an observant 45-year-old veteran whose initial glee at what cinema has to offer has been tempered by an understanding that what dazzles the audience doesn't necessarily help the story or even help the audience. Like Wells, Renoir also acted in several of his own films. Also, he sometimes wrote, but mostly co-wrote the scripts, whether they were original scenarios or adaptations from renowned novelists such as Maxime Gorky, Emile Zola, Gustave Flaubert, Hans Christian Andersen and Guy de Maupassant. And also like Wells, Renoir developed a style of storytelling that made his films utterly unique. The Rules of the Game is the best example of what Renoir did. Let us begin with the title, The Rules of the Game. There are several games played throughout the story, beginning with Robert, played by Marcel Dalio, who is always preoccupied by the little figurines that are housed within his clocks. Then his mistress Genevieve, played by Mila Pareli, is first seen hosting a game of cards. But it's not just the actions of the characters that refer to the title. Look at the floor in the mansion's hall and then downstairs in the kitchen. The floor pattern resembles a chessboard and once we see that, we see the entire house is a playhouse and all its inhabitants are mere pawns in the charade. That charade manifests itself most clearly in the amateur theatrical production staged by Robert and his guests. The amusement begins innocently enough but it takes a macabre turn 
as the players don costumes to resemble ghosts and skeletons. Is this society dead? Are they zombies? Or are they haunted? Either way, death is a stalker, and that death becomes a massacre when those same guests partake in a morning's hunt when they go out to shoot rabbits. It was with the rules of the game that Renoir perfected his technique of the extended take. More than that, he refined those single shots by playing the foreground against the background, so that quite often there are two planes of action taking place within the one shot. And the soundtrack for the dialogue is just as layered. But beyond mere technique, it was in this film that Renoir most markedly displayed his deep understanding of human nature and all its complex virtues and flaws. And for many observers, it was this ability that separated Renoir from almost all of his contemporaries. More than anything else, it was Renoir's humanism that came to the fore. Where did that ability come from? What was it about Renoir that gave him such insight? It is important to note that Renoir's father, the great Impressionist painter Pierre-Auguste, was venerated as one of the masters of the modern age, his canvases gazed upon and praised for their immense beauty and delicate application of colour. But Renoir's paintings were not just about beauty and colour. There were immense ideas behind them, and the overriding idea was to suggest the ever-changing quality of light. And that ever-changing quality brought with it the realisation of how transient and fleeting life is. Our existence is dazzling, yes, but as dazzling as it is, it reaches its corona and just as quickly it is gone. Renoir's canvases were celebrated by the public, and everywhere his genius was spoken of in near beatific tones. But what was it like to grow up as a son of such a renowned, unquestioned genius? Young Jeanne not only heard how the world spoke of his father, he was his father's subject, his likeness rendered in several paintings. And the father insisted that the son not cut his blonde locks, which resulted in the young son, with his long hair, repeatedly being mistaken for a girl. So, there was an immense separation between the father Jean knew and the artist the world so admired. To escape the shadow of his fated father, Jean initially sought a career diametrically opposed to creative art, becoming an officer in the French cavalry. Wounded in World War I and rescued from no man's land, Jean was saved from gangrene and the amputation of his leg by innovative treatment. Recovered, Jean re-enlisted, this time in the Air Force. Aerial reconnaissance gave him his first experience with a camera, but a mistimed landing put him out of action, this time for good. He spent his recuperation watching films, after which he was given a desk job that enabled him to be beside his father and a rapprochement began. Discussion, confession, recognition, forgiveness, acceptance, understanding. From Jean Renoir's own life experience, he learned just how frail our relationships are. But that was not all. Pierre-Auguste died in December 1919, and the following year Jeanne married Andrea Huschling, an aspiring actress who also happened to have been his father's last model. Andrea changed her name to Catherine Hessling, and together she and Jeanne would make several films. But none of them came anywhere near Renoir's towering achievement, The Rules of the Game. <laughs> 